Well, let's see how. I'm not trying to copy Sean. He did four parts, and that's not what I'm trying to do. It's just what I am doing. I remember the first time I spoke on this subject, Brother Corny Jansen asked me to come and teach on it in Niagara, and I thought I could cram it into two hours. And after three hours, I think I just abandoned it, and there we were. Last uh, time, I think we concluded, remember, we were a bit of review with respect to the scriptures, there are three basic issues. Uh, they're all shun words. They end in shun. The first begins with an I. Who remembers? Any of the under 20 crowd? What's that? Inspiration. Teacher's son, you know. He's getting the answers leaked to him at home. So that's... That's why no one ever wanted to have their dad or mom as a teacher. You'd never get credit for getting it right, you know. Inspiration. That's the first one. So that's the first giving, right? That's the giving of the scriptures. And then it's going to be copied. What do we call that? Begins with a T. Any of the over 20s? Ah, that's the last one. That's also a T. Translation. That's the going into other languages. In between, so we've got inspiration. Here's the Word of God. But what do we have a thousand years later? Transmission. The copying. Copying. So inspiration, transmission, and translation. Those are the three things to get the Word of God throughout the world. And, uh, you know, all the other issues can fall under one of those categories. And my experience in reading and so on, orthodox, right? So there are two terms, you know, and theologians use these terms in seminaries, and I don't like using them because it makes everything sound so highfalutin, you know, and educated and all of that. Whereas, uh, I mean, education is not evil in and of itself, proper education. We want to know the truth, that's education. We want to understand it, have wisdom. We don't want to be prideful and use, you know, stuffy things. But anyway, there it is. There's what's known as orthodox belief, which means it's right, and everyone agrees with it. And then there's what's called heterodox belief, which is you're out on your own and you're on a limb, right? So it's the two. So supposedly in um, respectable, conservative Christianity... What is orthodox belief is that the Holy Scriptures were inspired, the inerrant, right? Inspired, inerrant, infallible in the originals. That's the phrase at the end, in the originals. So God gave them, they're perfect. The problem is no one has any originals. But copies cannot be inspired. Because reasons. Like who says, right? And translations cannot be inspired. So these things are taught as truths that are self-evident in seminaries and Bible colleges around the world. 
Um, and we have been examining uh, these doctrines um, and comparing them with the scriptures and seeking to come to a biblical doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. The scriptures teach us what we believe about God. There's lots that can be discovered about God just by observing nature. And even other religions have at least some truth, many of them, and even much truth about God. Um, But the Holy Scriptures teach us about God. The Holy Scriptures teach us about the condition of man. I mean, so does the daily news. Man's a mess. But it explains in detail what is wrong with man. His spirit is dead in trespasses and sins. He needs to be regenerated. He needs a new spirit. The flesh is corrupt. And it explains why so much goes wrong. Tells us about the devil. Tells us about salvation and the Savior and the nature of God. And of course they're going to tell us about themselves. That would need to be it. And not rely on the scholars exclusively. Now, appreciate scholars, good God-fearing scholars, um, even bad ones that God has used. We're, we're thankful. We don't want to be proud and so on or any of these things. But we want to get at the truth. And um, we have looked at some of the then laws of textual criticism, right? When they compare manuscripts, they, the shorter reading is to be preferred usually because... The idea is that the scribe is trying to help you out by adding explanatory notes. And so if you got one longer, one shorter, then you assume the shorter one is correct. And we've looked at that and found, well, that's not what the scriptures say. Uh, A couple of examples. It's interesting, you know. Uh, I could do this test on you. This this is not a trick. It just takes a little bit of thinking. And the instinctive answer might be the wrong one. As far as we know... What are the first recorded scriptures in the Bible? As far as we know. Now you can't say because you were there for that one. You were getting fed the answers. Who wants to risk public embarrassment? I always did. I was like, pick me, pick me. Whatever. But What's that? Okay, so you're saying that's the oldest book. That is a very reasonable, and scholars would agree with you, but I'm going to go even before that. Not a book, the first written portion of Scripture, so far as we know. Yeah, I heard it there. The Ten Commandments. See, he's just an ordinary guy. The Pentateuch, that's the educated um, Bible college graduate there. The Pentateuch, the five books. Of the, in fact, not even the Pentateuch, but the Ten Commandments part of the Pentateuch. Right? The Ten Commandments. The double pent, right? Uh, uh, Is it the Decalogue? Is that what it is? The Decalogue. That's That's the one I thought you were saying, Decalogue. The Ten Commandments. Isn't that right? Um, Now, arguably, Job was written before that, and Moses had it, but that's what I said, as far as we know from the Scriptures. So you could be correct with that, brother. Job is, by many, considered the oldest book of the Bible. But the first record we have of the written word of God is the Ten Commandments. We looked already at the first um, verbal commandment passed on. Who's the first prophet, brothers? Bit of review. Adam. And he, God told him, gave him a commandment, and he repeated it to his wife and gave her a longer version. 
It was the Word of God. Um, the Ten Commandments, the original autographs were destroyed before they got to their intended audience. And God said to Moses, come on up, come up. I shouldn't say come on up, it was irreverent, but come up and um, I'll give you ten more. And even in the recording of those Ten Commandments by Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy, there are changes in the wording. And what that means is that God evidently is not subject to the rules of textual criticism that the scholars in the seminaries and Bible colleges, however learned, however well-meaning, however gracious and decent the men and women might be, he's not bound and limited to those. Uh, when the originals were lost, God inspired copies. <laughs> so inspiration is not limited to the original autographs. And these were our conclusions. God, who does not change, reissues his word when it gets destroyed. He's not limited to the original autographs. If necessary, God modifies his word, whether rephrasing or adding, as he deems fit when he reissues it. Remember, Jeremiah's prophecy was cut up, thrown into the fire, and the Lord, he redid it and added many words. So the second edition was even longer and phrased differently. Third point we observed was God uses ordinary people in the inspiration process. Right? So there was no concept that the uninspired scribe would make scribal errors. Baruch, who penned the words of Jeremiah, what about in the New Testament? Paul, you know, he was writing through Titus, through uh, Timothy, uh, um, Tychicus, others, right? Trophimus, uh, no, Trophimus, he left at Miletus, sick, and so on. So there's a scribe involved. And here's the point. These were ordinary brothers, not apostolic. But because, just follow the reasoning, right? We have, pick on one, that's not Titus, not Timothy, Tertius, Tertius. I, I, Tertius, this is the end of Romans. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. You all remember reading that in Romans. Who's Tertius? Or is it Tertius? How, how is it pronounced there? Any Latin scholars? Where's Joseph when we need him? Tertius, or, or even Abigail, right? <clears throat> He's just a brother. But everyone believes that not only did the Holy Spirit inspire and guide the thoughts and words of Paul, but the pen of Tertius, right? So that Paul was, has you, who's gotten a dictation or taking notes and copied something down wrong? Anybody? Yeah, most of us. Not, not, I see some real geniuses over here. So brethren, <laughs> take note. There was, I don't think a single hand went up over there. So we've got the, the, the genius section is on uh, what direction? Anyway, this side of the congregation. So uh, you're going to get some work, brethren. Uh, we, we get this wrong. So it's human. So everyone believes either Roman got some typos, the wrong word, you know. Sometimes you write the opposite word or missed word. So either we've got some possible blunders or, and nobody believes that, right? So I believe that Tertius was inspired in his note-taking. And he's just a brother. So if he can be inspired because it, and why would God need to inspire Tertius? This is a really easy question. Why? Okay. Right. So why wouldn't the same Lord do that for at least some of the copies? Right? Like, 
On what basis can we say that there is no copyist who could be inspired by God? Like we just made it up and decided that. So <clears throat> God uses ordinary people in the inspiration pro- process. And so the, the notion that only the originals are inspired is not biblical, as we shall further see. The reason it's important to establish these things is it is part of our um, search for um, the truth concerning the Word of God and what is the Word of God. So having these considerations is important. <clears throat> Transmission. <clears throat> Copies. And how the Lord keeps his word safe while here in this precarious world, which also includes preservation. So let's look at scriptures. Remember, we're looking at what the Bible has to say about itself. Sean outlined for us the historical process. We're looking at the biblical record. So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. The Bible addresses all of these things. Sufficient for everything we need to know. So this is the king. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me. Right? This is the thing. You want a king? Verse 15. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. And he gives some criteria for the king, which we won't take time to look at now. And verse 18. And it shall be, this is talking about the king, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. So the king was commanded to write a copy and rely on that copy as the word of God. Now someone could argue, quite reasonably, well it doesn't say it was inspired and all of those things. Yes, yes, I, I concede that. However, it also doesn't say There's no hint that he should think, wow, maybe I botched it and I can't really rely on this and I can't really trust this. This passage conveys the notion that the king should be treating this copy as if it is the very word of God. And that is what I would say the Christian should be doing. The follower of God should be treating the copy as the very word of God, as part of his faith and obedience to God. And brethren, in this Study. one of the things I'm doing and counteracting is the notion that your Bible is not reliable. Uh, I'll jump ahead a little bit. Historically speaking, <clears throat> and, uh, in, in my own life, I remember decades ago when the Internet was a new thing in public life and it was common to navigate around it by pressing the tab key on a black screen jumping from link to link and all it would appear was text, Oh, those were glorious days. No images to, to worry about and ad blockers to have to put up or any of those things. Just text. Oh, for those days again, glorious. <clears throat> I say that tongue-in-cheek because the Internet's an awful thing anyway. But uh, I did spend time on a number of online forums 
religious debate forum, Bible version debate forum, fighting fundamentalist forum. So that was interesting. I learned some things. I learned, I think, most of all, that it was largely futile. We all danced around, and I think everyone just stayed on the same page where he was at, and we all just kind of tossed our ideas around. But this, uh, one of the things that came out there in the Bible version debate forum was this, you know, you had the King James only types, where it's only the King James. You had the King James also types. You had the... Just it was a free for all. But one person, I remember, I, I, I mean, I could tell you his name, but not that it would matter to you. You wouldn't know who he is. Uh, I've never met him. But he, he made a very, very good point. He's going through church history and he brought up the document, you see. What we have today in educated Christian circles is the idea, well, this reading and, and it's a little it's different than the original and, and, and this constant tweaking or undermining of the plain English text you have. And, and those that were always doing that were saying, well, it's just part of integrity. We want to get this right. <laughs> and this brother who at the time was a missionary to Poland, fundamentalist Baptist. Not that any of that is of any consequence. He brought out a historical account that, uh, they were saying scholars have always done this. He said, yes, but the common people didn't. And that's a huge difference today. And at least one church historian observed that the common people of 100 and two and 300 years ago, believed that the book they held in their hands was the very word of God, as if given from Mount Sinai or the Sermon on the Mount or something. They had such confidence. And it was to those people who had such a confidence in the word of God that the great revivals of the English-speaking world came. Now, those are historical facts. And coincidentally, in our age of scholarship, where since the 19th century, revisionism of the Bible, where we're not sure that verse shouldn't be there, and maybe this and so on, that there have been almost no revivals anywhere in the English-speaking world where that idea has taken root. And I make that connection. is that a lack of reverence and confidence in the Word of God goes with a powerless church that is not blessed with revival. One of the hallmarks, it is not the only one, one of the hallmarks of revival in Christian churches is complete confidence in the Word of God. That is one. And so I am seeking to fortify our confidence in the Word of God from the self-evident Scriptures. No, just drawing our attention to them to show that these, this perhaps well-meaning in terms of the people we talk to, this infiltration of the church, and I don't mean our congregation, but in Western Christendom in particular, of undermining the scriptures has been um, a poison, and I, I'm, I'm seeking to do my little part to help strengthen us so we can say as Jesus did. Now watch this. When Jesus was tempted of Satan, it is 
written. And the Lord Jesus was over a thousand years from Moses. And he was brought up reading a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Hundreds of years. Over a thousand years removed from the original autographs. And he treated it as if it was the very words spoken from Sinai. And I would submit that that is the attitude that the Christian should have to the scriptures. Not some, well, scholars differ and maybe this reading is a bit different. So we can't be dogmatic on these things because they're not clear. So we just have to allow it. There's lots brought into the church through that. And may it never come here. So this is where some of this, you know, what are you harping on about, Martin? Well, it's not got to do with us here. This is, a, this is a part of our vitamin D uh, of our faith. is to immunize us and build our immune system against the, um, the unbelief that is uh, pervasive in Western Christianity. <clears throat> so that's, that's where we're at. So this copy, the king was told to write a copy and rely on it as the word of God. Let's look. Let's skate on a few more. You know how I, I can... You brothers are so patient. Um, Deuteronomy 27. <clears throat> Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. Right? Um, they're about to come into the land of Canaan. And it shall be on the day when ye shall pass over Jordan unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones and plaster them with plaster, and thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law when thou art passed over, that thou mayest go in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And so on. <clears throat> Again, this is a copy that they were to write that was to be treated as if it was the original. We're addressing this issue that copies are in any way inferior. Joshua 8.32 Now, I'm not saying that some copy or other can't, or many, couldn't have issues. I'm addressing the idea that can copies be inspired, and what's God's attitude towards it. That's the thing. <clears throat> Joshua 8.32. This is Joshua, or verse 30, sorry. Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, which we just read, an altar made of whole stones, and they offered thereon, verse 32, and he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. <clears throat> okay, so these are copies. Proverbs 25, it gets even more explicit than this. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 25. This isn't the law now. So we've seen that they were, the king was commanded to make a copy. Joshua was commanded to make a copy. And that copy was treated as if it was the original autograph. Proverbs 25, verse 1. These are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. And then he lists them. Now you've got several issues there. So, give some easy questions. Who is the human author of the Proverbs that are in mention here? Really easy question. If you, re you can read the text again. Solomon. Perfect. That's the answer. Okay. Now, how do they come to be in our Bible? 
Hezekiah's men, not even Hezekiah, copied them out. Who remembers how many years between Solomon and Hezekiah? It's a lot. Like this, ding, ding, ding. Hezekiah was one of the last good kings. I mean, not past the middle. We're into a good number of kings. Could be, you know, off the top of my head. I don't know, a couple of hundred years easily. <clears throat> so the originals we have are copies hundreds of years later. And they're considered inspired. Inspired copies right in your Bible. Again, <laughs> we're just looking at... Uh, and one of the things we're also doing is, brethren, let's get our thoughts, our opinions, our convictions, our doctrines from the Scriptures. Right? Not just because it's commonly said. You know? <laughs> and people, people do it. It's just a reflex. Well, we know that translation is not inspired. Oh, Really? My Bible says the opposite. Now just try that and someone will show you where. Well, we'll get to that. So there's copies, right? Their first appearance, they're copied by the king's men who were not prophets. Uh, they appear over 10 successive kings, over 200 years removed from the originals. And they're included in the Holy Scriptures, which Jesus said cannot be broken. Second Chronicles 17. And for those that like to jot down these references, verse 9. <clears throat> And look, and I encourage you to just consider these things in your own leisure. Verse 9. So, uh, in verse 7, the third year of his reign, um, I think this is Jehoshaphat, and his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. And verse 7, in the third year of his reign, he sent to his princes, even to Benhal, to Obadiah, Zechariah, Nehaniel, Micaiah to teach in the cities of Judah, and with them he sent Levites, um, Shemaiah, Nathaniah, Zabadiah, Asahel, Shemiramoth, Yehonatan, Adoniah, Tobiah, Tobadoniah, Levites, and with them Elishama and Jehoram, priests. And they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. And went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. <clears throat> now, notice what it's called. It's called the book of the law of the Lord. The book of the law of the Lord. And it's just referred to as if it was the original, right? And this is all normal stuff. But yet, this is hundreds of years from Moses. So we're just observing the idea that copies were treated by the people of God as if they were the inspired originals. That's really a simple point. I'm wanting to underscore it and hammer it home, drive it in, pound it with hammer and tongs, uh, this point, that the Word of God treats copies as if they were the original. Second Kings 22, verse 8 Two, twenty-three, twenty-four tells how the word of God uh, lost to the people. I mean, it was just hidden in a closet and was found and trusted in its entirety. We have found, let's find that, you can look at the passage later. Um, verse 8, yeah, 22, 8. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And they came to the king. Thy servants have gathered the money and so on. Um, 
And the priest hath delivered me a book, and he read it before the king. And it came to pass, verse 11, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. So this book of the law, remember copies were established, was treated as the very word of God. This next point, you could perhaps argue, um, is... um, not necessarily as self-evident. It could lend itself to different interpretations, and I concede that, but I submit it for our consideration anyway. Exodus chapter 4, verses, uh, verses 11 to 16. Um, <clears throat> God says to Moses, God calls Moses, and Moses complains in verse 10, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore, Right? Not before, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. I am slow speech, and of a slow tongue. Lord, you've called me and sent me, but you haven't changed my ability to speak. And of course, I don't think Moses was stammering. Right? If I understand what's happened, 40 years, because Stephen tells us Moses was mighty in words and deeds, right? Learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, mighty in words and deeds, so he wasn't a stammerer. What I would understand this to be is that one, brought up in Pharaoh's court, Moses was HSL. Right? Hebrew was a second language. Right? Egyptian was his first language. And 40 years in Midian, he hasn't spoken Hebrew to anybody. So he's slow, he's, right? He's not that he's stuttering, right? Which, I mean, God bless people that have that Speech impediment is nothing, you know, that's, we all have our struggles. But that's not how I understand Moses. He, he struggles to get his vocabulary and to think, right? He's slow of speech. This would be how I would understand it. Perhaps I'm mistaken. But in any case, I'm slow speech and of a slow tongue. The Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth or maketh the dumb, the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? But again, even in that context, remember the Lord made the confusion of tongues at Babel. So he's talking about really the brain that frames the words. Uh, Now go and I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. And Moses argued with God. And uh, verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. This is something good to learn. But anyhow, uh, when God called you, don't argue. And thou shalt speak unto him. Right? So I know... The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. And when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. And thou shalt speak unto him and put words in his mouth. And I will be with thy mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what ye shall do. And he shall be thy spokesman unto the people. And he shall be even, he shall be to thee instead of a mouth. And thou shalt be to him instead of God. Now, what I'm observing is God and his ways. So, God is sending the word of God to his people. And in a type, Moses was the word of God. Now, we know Jesus is the word of God. But under the Old Testament, remember Moses said, A prophet like unto me shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. And again, um, Moses as a servant was faithful in all his house, but Christ as a son over his own house. So, God put his word in Moses. 
And he says, I, and you are going to speak to Aaron, and Aaron's going to speak to people. So it's a copy. What people getting first out is a copy. I'm going to be with your mouth and with Aaron's mouth. This is a process because God is getting his word to the people. I want to consider, brethren, the, the uh, nature of God. He's not just speaking into the air. I'm going to ask another really easy question. When God speaks, to whom is he speaking? To the animals? To the angels? Occasionally. Occasionally to the animals. I mean, Balaam's donkey and so on. But primarily, to whom is God speaking when he speaks? To human beings, to people. These are easy questions. Why is God speaking to people? There's a few answers, and they'll probably all be correct. Reveal his will. Devin, you want to hazard a go? Just make sure that everyone's awake. You pass? All right, that's fair. What's to communicate? Is it reasonable for me to believe that God, in speaking to men and women, want them to get his message the way he wants it got? Is that too much for me to think? Is it too much for me to think he's capable of getting it to the people he's speaking to the way he wants it got? Do you see how... Utterly unreasonable it is to believe that God gave these inspired originals, but they got a bit munged up, but oh well, uh, good enough. Sorry. It's, it's just a completely ridiculous idea, and i sorry, not sorry, to hammer away at it. Um, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, this man that is the embodiment of the Old Testament law, the word of God to the Jewish people... Verses 1 to 15, you read the story of how precarious Moses was. Right? Almost killed, put as an infant in the basket into the Nile. I guess there's crocodiles in there, like chomp, right? This child. This is the nature of God. With the Lord Jesus, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that word was carried as a helpless, defenseless babe. Whom God made himself subject to the nurturing care of his earthly mother. And his protective care of a poor carpenter. And then he had the wrath of a heathen king vented at him to try and kill him. And instead of sending an army of angels, God just did a bit of preemptive. And this man fled, either on foot or on donkey, to a foreign country. And the the very word of God upon whom the salvation of all human beings depended missed early death by a hair's breadth, right? This is the nature of God. But kept secure. And I would submit, brethren... You see it in Moses' life. You see that Moses spoke that this is how he has done with his scriptures as well. And that there is no need to doubt them. He kept Moses. He kept Christ. He wrought salvation uh, through them. And so we, we have these things in uh, 
you know, these are scriptures. I would encourage us, as we have time, I know we're all busy, and uh, it's a challenge just to try and read through the Bible ourselves in our own pace and our own Bible reading program, uh, however that is, than to then take on extra homework from the preacher. But if I think it will profit if you have your notes and you consider them. Matthew chapter 2, yes, that recounts the issue I just mentioned with Herod. Um, let's have a look at Mark chapter 12. Verse 19. Look at this. All right, this is the Sadducees. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. Now I've read, not in the scripture, but in historical account or analyses, that the Sadducees only believed in the five books of Moses as inspired. Um, the, the, their, the time estimates of when Moses lived was, I think, somewhere between 13 and 18 centuries before Christ. Various scholars and so on, I, I, and I can't tell you. But at least 1,300 years before Christ, Moses wrote the five books of Moses, right? And they were written on animal skins or paper, what, what parchment. I mean, there's dispute as to what they would have written on based on the, tech, well, there might not be dispute, but based on what is known about the technology at the time. But it wasn't durable. Other than stone, it wasn't durable. It's going to perish, you're going to make copies. The originals are going to wear out. Mark chapter 12, verse 19, the Sadducees came to Jesus saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us. That's the thing. 1,300 years later, they had not the original autographs, but their, their belief in God was that what Moses wrote 1,300 years earlier had been kept and given to them by God as if it came from the very pen of Moses, whom they would say later, we know God spoke to Moses. In other words, God sent his word to us through Moses. Right? So I'm underscoring the New Testament, the scriptural view of the scriptures. So this is why you'll hear me pray, and it's not because I'm calculating, it's just a part, or, or preach, that the apostles wrote unto us. The prophets wrote to us. Not only us, but we were included. When God inspired this book, he had you in mind and me as well as countless others. We worship a smart God. See, God's intelligent. He has an exceedingly high IQ. Uncountable. And He's very capable. He's, making, he's, he's not like um, you know, some of us brothers who forget to tell our wives things. Does this happen, brothers? Please tell your wife thus and such. And it doesn't happen. Am I the only one that has ever forgotten to pass on a message? A couple of brothers willing to, yes. Bless you, you're not even married, but it's good preparation. Good for you, yeah. Uh, God's not like that. He never forgets. The scripture says that a woman will forget her newborn babe before God forgets his people, right? And that's not happening. 
Moses wrote unto us. Romans 4, we're just, we've, all we've done for this study is go through the scriptures to see what the scriptures say about themselves, what attitudes were inspired here. <clears throat> this is how Paul, right? These things are just assumed by all the writers, and in some ways it's a shame we even have to go over it. Romans 4, verse 23. So Paul is talking about Abraham. And the scripture is recording. Now it was not written for his sake alone, verse 24, but for us also. So the account that Moses wrote about Abraham, who believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness, was written by Moses for the church that would come uh, over a thousand years later. Uh, Romans chapter 15. Verse 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. That we, through patience and comfort of the pretty good but subject to error copies of the scriptures, might have hope. This is what people think. I had a, I had a sister years ago at an evangelical church tell me, the King James isn't the Bible, Martin. Meaning, like, you have to go to the Greek and this and that. And I just, yeah, yeah, I know. Anyhow, I would give a different answer today. Uh, it is actually the Bible. That's the thing. And you can trust it completely. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Romans, uh, yeah, so there we were in 15. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. That's the church. 1 Corinthians nine ten. This is a very powerful point, brethren. 1 Corinthians 9, 10. Um, we're going to look at a number of scriptures. It is written, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 9. In the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen, or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. Chapter 10, verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the earth are come. 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter, 10. <laughs> First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. Verse 9, right? So, um, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now, there is so much understanding in this, in these verses. What's being said is what we said already. The scriptures were written for the church. The Old Testament, as it's called, scriptures, was written for the church. Isaiah, evidently, it was revealed to Isaiah that the prophecy he was writing was primarily not for the people of his day, though he reproved them, but for the church centuries later. 
It gets better than that because here we're reading in Peter and Paul's writing. Every, all of these educated, I shouldn't say, I'm sorry, but educated people, they know that the scriptures, the New Testament's written in what language? Greek. That's what everyone believes. A few would believe that um, the original from Matthew would have been in Hebrew. Maybe James, although it's written scattered and then translated. But Matthew would be one. And the book of the Revelation, perhaps. It certainly seems to have an underlying temple structure and so on. But almost exclusively written in Greek. So here you have a situation where the apostle is writing in a Greek Gentile language to Gentile people. Some would argue that Peter is writing only to Jewish believers, but they're certainly Greek-speaking Jews. But we've read the ones of Paul. They're writing to Gentile people and saying that the prophets were prophesying to you. We're getting into translation now because they were reading the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation. But we'll get to that later. That when God gave the prophecy to Isaiah, he was giving that prophecy primarily... For some Jews and a whole lot of Gentile people. That was in God's heart when he gave the prophecy. And he revealed that to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, to Jeremiah, and all who prophesied of the new covenant and the sufferings of Christ. It was revealed to them that they were giving this message for the Gentile world. And it to be translated into their language. And I'm expected to believe that it got bungled along the way. Do you see how crazy it is, brother? <laughs> it was real to them. The, the, in fact, implicit in here, and it's not, it's not openly stated, it's so obvious. The person, and yes, it's stated this way because even Christ came for us. The person, can you imagine? To have been there when the living word, Christ Jesus, stood up as was his custom to read the Holy Scriptures. And on this day, he sat to expound them. If I understand what was going on correctly, instead of taking his place in the congregation as the reader after reading the Scriptures, he took the place as the master and teacher in the teaching chair. He sat and everyone's riveted. Because he's read, but now he sat to teach and he began to speak. He said, this day is a scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear witness and wonder at the gracious words proceeding out of his mouth. That the scriptures were given for Messiah to read and expound. And the process it went through for hundreds of years to get to him, I am persuaded, was in exactly the form that the Father intended. Could we believe anything else? And that's inspiration. And that the scriptures that were given to the church, Jew and Gentile, in Hebrew and Greek, (laughs) were exactly in the form that God intended. And that is inspiration. And that God didn't now abandon that project with the death of the apostles, but has kept and translated and preserved 
and copied and distributed his word to his people throughout the generations. This is, to me, the most compelling um, thing to consider unless God has changed. He, he gave it originally to Isaiah for people a thousand years later. Seven, eight hundred years later and, and on. And he got it to those people in the form he wanted them to receive it, though it wasn't the identical form that he gave it to Isaiah. And that the entire process was inspiration. <clears throat> Let's look at the Lord Jesus and his use of the scriptures, which we alluded to earlier. I should stop here. Just uh, for me, Well, maybe... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, we could, we could take a pause. Any questions or comments at this, at this juncture? Is anyone confused? It's always possible. No one wants to say that, right? Everyone thinks they're the only one. They don't realize that half the people are lost. <laughs> Mind wanders, what have you. I'm hoping this is, this is clear for us. Luke 4, verses 18 to 21. <clears throat> and this is the part we just read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, or just referred to him, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. Uh, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Um, so, <clears throat> and then in verse 21, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Verse 18 there, that's a passage from Isaiah, right? Chapter 61. Of whom does that passage speak? Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So here we have the Lord Jesus reading a scripture about himself. Is there any thought imaginable that this wasn't exactly the form, the spelling, the, the letter shapes that God wanted Messiah to be reading from? Those scriptures were given to Isaiah hundreds of years before for this and other purposes to be expounded thereafter. But the pinnacle moment would be Messiah reading those scriptures that were fulfilled first of all in the very ears of the people to whom Messiah himself read it. Surely it was that scroll. Everything about it was exactly the way God intended. Would you not believe that? Am I just going over the obvious? <laughs> now, I'm jump ahead. Is it not reasonable to believe then? Let's look at another passage. I'm jumping out of... Let's, let's look here. In Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 1. God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake... In time past, unto the fathers, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. <clears throat> spoken unto us. God speaking. When you pick up your King James Bible, 
God speaking to you. God determined, Paul wrote, the times before appointed and the bounds of habitation. God made you to live in 21st century Canada and speak English. And he's speaking to you through this book. And he got it to you just the way he wanted it to. And that's a confidence you can have when you read the word of God. Isn't that great? Because our confidence is not in man, not in the scribe, not in Gutenberg and the printing press, not in Cambridge publishers. Our confidence is in God who created all things. That's a thing. <clears throat> Everything, the entire sweep of history that Sean uh, walked us through, how the scriptures were prepared, Ezra collating, completing, editing, and distributing them throughout the synagogue system, the whole thing. <clears throat> Look at the phrase, it is written. Take some time on your own. It is written. A word search on that. Look in your concordance. And see how Christ and the apostles used that phrase. And that is evidence that they regarded the copies in their hands as the very word of God. And they received it without quibble, question, or qualification. Um, And so the idea that only the original autographs were inspired but no copies is entirely without biblical support. And it is an invention of men. Mark chapter 10 Verse 19. Now, people can raise questions. What do you do when manuscripts differ and this and that? You know, that's not really my problem. Um, That's not a new issue. The Lord sorted all that out. And here he's got us a Bible that we can. You can trace the process. Sean did. Um, That's a separate discussion. Look at how Christ uh, quoted the scriptures. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. That is God. If you just think I'm a good teacher, you're completely misguided. First of all, none of those teachers are good. Are you acknowledging me as Messiah or not? But, anyway, leaving that aside, thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. The Lord didn't um, uh, quote precisely. It was still the word of God. I wish I had noticed that when I was younger. You know, used to get it just so, and you'd... Although it did make for better memorization, my poor children. The older ones got the harness treatment. You know, they had to memorize. I think the eldest four had to memorize the first seven chapters of Matthew. Starting with the begats in chapter one. And they had to recite it for daddy. You know, I think I let them do chapters one to four and then five to seven for recite. And if they got one syllable wrong, one punctuation mark, they paused in the wrong spot. And they failed. They had to redo it. Uh, yeah, I had some, you know, and I didn't sit there. Come on, you can do this. And like, just so that they knew it so well, they could plow through the tough face, you know. Daddy, yeah. Never. I've mellowed, you know, softer. Teddy bear now. Um, but they, they, you know, I was pretty picky. You had to quote it and 
just so. Well, the Lord, can you imagine? Yeah, I hope I would not have been that out there to correct the Lord. Lord, you misquoted. Can you imagine? <laughs> the Lord Jesus was content to paraphrase and uh, quote. So that, that, that has implications, right? Christ and the apostles were careful to be true to the meaning, yet sometimes they even interpreted as they quoted. They were not always fastidious, fussy, right, to quote word for word, yet they were very careful about what was written, right? So that was always exact. When it came to writing the word, that had to be exact. And um, I think it should help us not be hostile towards people with different versions and so on. I mean, some are over the top. I, I wish I had documented it so I could give you proper information. And I've only read it. I haven't, haven't searched out the source. So take this with a grain of salt. But I'm, I've read, and I think I mentioned this before, in China, the Chinese Communist Party are trying to infiltrate the government churches. And I know there's just a, anyone with a Bible there with a revised version of their Bible to make Jesus just a sinner, right? I think the, the example I read, and I don't have it right, but um, something to the effect, instead of, woman, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more, it was like, go and stone her, for I too am a sinner, or something like that. Like, it completely changed the story that people would read in the Bible. And, of course, Satan's attacking the Word of God, and it... it um, wouldn't be surprised that there was a there was a, a Bible translation called Good as New, awful thing. I read excerpts from it. Really changes the meaning, the Word of God. Really changes it. Makes it politically correct. So instead of instead of um, yeah. Anyway, none of the none of the um, various political issues and sexual issues and so on of today would be reproved by it. That's all good. You know, when Paul, Paul talks about every, let every man have his own wife and every, man have, every wife have her own husband, it was just changed. Everyone have their own partner. Right? Good as new. Um, those are attacks on the Word of God. But if somebody has another Bible version... And the meaning is essentially the same as what's in your King James Bible. I wouldn't get into an argument with a person and, you know, um, so on. Where we run into conflict is when they want to say, nope, you can't trust that, that's wrong, this one's right. Then I say, you know, I think you've got a problem there. Um, I do believe, though, that each congregation should have one, one book. Shall be reading from the same scriptures. Uh, that's compatible. That's what they did in the early church. Um, they didn't have, you know, everyone didn't even have their own copy. But they were, um, they were all just reading from the same uh, version, so to speak. So that is what I think a church should do. Every church should have. And I think the wider churches that are affiliated should all use the same um, Bible. I think that is consistent with the New Testament. How are we doing? So we've looked at inspiration and transmission. Are we all together on this so far? Is this self-evident, brethren? Proved from the scriptures? Let's look at translation. All right? 
What, so inspiration, it's the first giving. Transmission, that's the copying, down through the generations. Third, translation, that's going from the original into other languages. What is God's will for his word to go into other languages? A, does he want the scriptures translated? Does he want his word to go into other languages? And would he help? Does he want us all to learn Hebrew? And if we're going to change it, we're on our own. Right? This is essentially the question. And what do the scriptures have to say? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14.21. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. It's not what this passage says, but uh, that's that's what he said through the prophet. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Isn't that what happened on the day of Pentecost as well? I know many were converted, but they were mocking when they heard other tongues. Isaiah 28, verse 11 to 16. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell, are we at agreement? When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. So God said that he is going to speak to his people through a different language. Right? With stammering lips and another tongue. So they're not eloquent and it's a different language. Both old and new have that. Acts chapter 2. That's interesting. There's a typo there. In my notes. Okay, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. How hear we, verse 8, every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea, and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, and Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and the strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Verse 17, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I'll pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. It is apparent from these scriptures that God is going to have his word spoken in every language under heaven. 
<clears throat> we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Where does that phrase come from? The wonderful works of God. This one's a little. Not quite some of the easy ones that I've been, but it's still not that hard if you're a regular Bible reader. If Henry Wall was here, he'd know. There's a bit of a hint for you. It's like, you know. Ooh, not just the Psalms, but Psalm 108, yes. Let's look at it, right? So it's the language of the Psalms. That's the key. Did you have a verse as well, brother, while you're there? I, I knew that you, you've got the... Yeah, you've got the, the young, aren't they wonderful? Do you have one? Verses. Verse 31 of Psalm 107. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Um, <clears throat> all right, this is, uh, this is not an, uh, verse 21 of Psalm 107. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Now, before that, it's describing his wonderful works. Hannah, when she had the baby, she, she uh, praised the Lord. Um, Mary and Elizabeth, they spoke the wonderful works of God, right? Um, Blessed is his name, for, you know, and he that is holy has done to me great things. From henceforth all nations shall call me blessed. These are the kind of psalmodic, right? Psalm like expressions of praise to God. The most likely thing is that on the day of Pentecost, they were speaking either the very Psalms or in Psalm-like expressions of praise to God, which is the Word of God. And it was going in all sorts of languages at the same time. And nobody said, hold on, hold on. Let's go back to the original Hebrew to see if they're getting this right. It was just the word of God. Inspired in different languages. Now, some could argue not every language has the same capacity to express thoughts. That may be. But God has the same ability to get his word in any language he chooses in exactly the form he wants. Through whatever means he uses. And having revealed his will, that he wants his word in every tongue of every nation under heaven. And how, how is there going to be in heaven a multitude out of every kindred, people, tribe, and tongue, except that the word of the gospel goes into the language of every people, kindred, tribe, and tongue? God has revealed his will. His will for his word to go into every nation unto heaven, to be spoken in every language, will he not ensure that it is done to his satisfaction? Not every language gets the scriptures written, and certainly not at the same time. There are some languages, even today, that have no written alphabet, or there's no writing. It's an entirely spoken language. They won't get a copy of, or a translation of the scriptures. Unless they have a written language. So all of that process. So not all languages are equal. They're not all the same. 
And that's okay. <laughs> Just because God inspires his word or has it translated in one language doesn't mean he's obliged to do the exact same equivalent in every language. And the evidence of that is the fact that there are languages with no written version of the language. And so, while God has given a written translation of this language, he hasn't in that one. And that is entirely within his power. So the notion that if you claim that this Bible is an inspired translation, then you have to find an inspired version in every language is an unfounded notion. There's no such obligation. It may be the case sooner or later. And I would think, yeah, that would would make sense. But if a language does not have any written word, that doesn't mean those people can't get saved. doesn't mean they can't have the word of God. They might have less of it. I suspect they're not going to be all talking First Chronicles, the first nine chapters, you know, in their new language. I mean, in their language, you know what I mean? The names and they begat so-and-so and begat and begat. But they'll have the gospel. They'll have Christ. So there, there will be difference in one language and another. That does not mean that it is not the word of God in each language. You following that, brethren? Because some will say, well, in this, this language it's like this, and in this language... There's a few I recall. <clears throat> and again, this is from the you know, Bible version debate forum. And they're arguing about dynamic equivalence versus literal translation. Oh, your wife's not in this room. There's a, there's a French proverb. Not proverb from the Bible, but saying that says, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs or something like that. Uh, some things like that, that, the English translation isn't exactly what it says in the French. It's like that in all sorts of languages. And they were arguing about the difference in the translation, I think, between the New American Standard or the American Standard Version, NASB or the ASV, I forget, and the King James. In Job, when Job says, can one eat the white of an egg without salt? Something like that. Well, can one taste the white of an egg? Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Something like that. You all get the idea immediately. The answer is no. Like, who wants to eat, you know, an egg, the runny white part, without any flavor? It's like, you know. That's the idea, right? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is supposed to be no. And then the other question is no. We do it all the time, right? And they pointed out, well, in the Hebrew, it's the slime of the purslane. It's not, there's not egg. It's, can the slime of the purslane be eaten without salt? And the King James translators use dynamic equivalence to put it in phrasing that everyone could relate to. And that's either bad, they shouldn't have done that, or it means that you can't criticize other versions for using dynamic equivalence, and so on. You can imagine the literalists of the King James-only crowd, and the everything goes crowd, and they're all bickering with each other. But I would simply say it's God's word, And he can, it's the meaning that he's interested in. And that um, it's quite, (laughs) quite fine. Um, Some have pointed out the original commandment, right? Thou shalt not kill. Here's a contradiction. Because then he tells him to kill the guy who blasphemes and stone him to death, right? Which is it? Well, the word kill there means... Thou shalt not murder. That's what it actually means. 
It doesn't mean you would never kill the idolater, as they did, or the murderer himself. It means you don't murder. That's what thou shall not kill. And elsewhere, when the Lord Jesus quoted it, we read it earlier, he said, do no murder. Um, All of those things, I'm not going to get bogged down with that. What we are looking at, brethren, is it's the word of God. It's the word of God. And if you look at how the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are recorded in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and the variations, um, the Lord seems not interested in pleasing any of the scholars or any of the people in the argument What he wants us to do is recognize his word and his will. Uh, Is it reasonable? So here's a question. Is it reasonable for us to look for God to do this for our language, right? To make diligent search to know if this is done. Here's Here's a test. Um... How many of you remember, Sean, what was, the, what was the Greek version of the Old Testament that was common throughout the Roman Empire at the time of the apostles? It, it was called what? How many of you remember? Yes, the Septuagint. And Sean used to go calling it the LXX, I think, too, right? Because that's what you'll see in the margin, you know, LXX, Right? L is the Roman numeral for 50, X is 10, 10, so you've got 50 plus 10 plus 10 is 70. It's referred to as the translation of the 70, the LXX for short, the Septuagint. So it's commonly believed that the apostles quoted from the Septuagint in all the scriptural references. In the New Testament writings, which were written to the church in Greek, and the apostles quoted from the Septuagint. How many are familiar with that idea? Yeah. Okay, so what that means then is the apostles believed in a spirit-inspired translation. Because not once did they say, you have to go back to the original Hebrew. I know your version says this, but really in the original Hebrew it's this. Not once did they do that. And I would submit that that is an unapostolic approach. And that you should never do it. And neither should I. Well, in the Greek, I know your Bible says this, but really in the Greek it's that. This, that approach has two problems. One, it undermines people's confidence in the scriptures. And two, it makes you the expert and means now they have nothing to say. It's an elitist approach. Now, if we use in dictionaries that we can all look. Yeah, that's what that word means. Um, I've, I've had words I didn't. I misunderstood its meaning or I didn't know what it means. You can look it up um, and it's accessible to all. So there, there is that. But it's evidence that um, at the very least, who can give us a, right off the top uh, um, in one of the epistles where the apostles are quoting a passage of Scripture? Ephesians chapter 4. All right, let's look there. Verse 
Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. All right, so that's Psalm 68, verse 18. And your New Testament scholars would tell you that Paul is quoting from the Septuagint, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. <clears throat> Which means that the Holy Spirit just inspired the apostle to quote a translation which is effectively a spirit-inspired translation. Gotcha. That's what I would say to your guys who's... Right? The, um, that's the point here, is that the apostles never contradicted the Septuagint. They used it as if it was the very word of God. They never said, oh, it's translated wrong here, or you've got to go back to the original language, and that's, you know, the Hebrew is the original... All of these ideas that people use to undermine the scriptures, you never find the apostles doing. At the time of the apostles, there was one principal version for the global language of the Gentile world. And that was the Septuagint. That's what all the churches were using at the time of the apostles. And there was one principal Hebrew version in the temple even if different rabbis wrote paraphrases for their local congregations. Um, And I believe that that is how it should be in the church as well. The Gospels themselves, spoken in the Hebrew tongue, were translated into Greek under the inspiration of the Spirit. Unless you think that the Lord and the apostles and all the parables and everything were spoken to everybody in Greek. Is that really a realistic belief? Even the sign, right? What was, what was Jesus' accusation? Right, The sign on his cross over his head? What was his accusation? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it was written in Latin and, and Hebrew. Now, if everybody spoke Greek or Latin, you wouldn't need to write it in Hebrew. Right? Now, do you think it was written in Hebrew for those Roman officials that didn't speak Latin or Greek? Couldn't read Latin? So, Martin, don't be religious. What are you getting at? I'm saying that if the Lord Jesus, to whom was the Lord Jesus sent? The lost sheep of the house of Israel or the Gentiles? Hint, this is really easy, folks. The Jews. So, if he's teaching Jews, and he wants to make sure all the Jews understand him, what language would he be teaching it? It's going to be in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew tongue. Some call it Aramaic, I'm not worried about that. So, what we have is right at the outset, the Spirit inspired the Gospel writers to translate the Lord's Hebrew tongue into Greek. So, right at the outset, we have Spirit-inspired translation. In your Bible. So the idea that the a translation can't be inspired runs contrary to God's revealed will and the practice of the apostles. Right? The apostles used a Greek translation. The men who were translating it were of variable integrity and quality. They weren't all prophets. And yet, who can doubt 
that the translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek circulated throughout the Gentile world for the church to use. Remember, to whom were the Scriptures written? For whom? We started early with this. They were written for the church. The church which was a Greek-speaking church. So that translation of Isaiah from Hebrew into Greek was God's message for the church. The, the Gentile readers hearing these Greek scriptures read were hearing them and they were the intended audience. You're following this, right? So this first century church, the church at Corinth, the, church at Gal- the churches of Galatia, I think that's a region about the size of southern Ontario. It's not just one little church. Many churches in that region. All of these churches, they were hearing Isaiah read in Greek. And Isaiah was written for them. Can we doubt? Can we not be confident that God got it translated for them? In exactly the form he wanted it. I would submit to you that that is the most biblically consistent and reasonable assumption. Uh, But the implication of that is that what you have is God inspiring a translation through ordinary men. Which means he can do it again into English. And I would submit, and we'll close because we're over our time, that the evidence that that is what he has done with your King James Bible... Is, is just that. That you have in your hand, in your King James Bible, the very Word of God. Down through the ages, sent to you. And you can have complete confidence in it. We have seen how it was gotten to us historically. Um, and we've looked internally at the nature of God contained within the text. And any variations, the spelling changes, and all of that. All under the control of God and nothing of which we need to be concerned about. Um, We have the very words of Christ and the apostles sufficient for all things concerning faith and godliness. Why don't we close there? We can have a bit of a Q&A next time or discuss any missed points. Is it clear though brethren? Can you see how it is entirely consistent with what we've seen in history and what the scriptures themselves say? The thing that it leaves us with is that when you and I read it we can say with the Lord and with the apostles it is written with finality. We can say thus saith the Lord.